the best argument against Christianity is the joylessness of Christians. So claimed the hugely influential 19th century existentialist philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. I have to say that Nietzsche's observation may have been true in his time. If we think about the sort of rather bleak Victorian moralizers, perhaps, who were doubtless at least some of his contemporaries. But I think, I hope, it holds rather less water in this day and age. Many Christians most definitely have an extraordinary outlook on life and change the atmosphere for the better wherever they may go. But we're also going to spend the next six weeks doing our very best to disprove Nietzsche in wider terms. Because starting today, we are journeying together through St Paul's letter to the very earliest Christians in the northeastern Greek city of Philippi, in a sermon series that Bronwyn and Annie and I are going to share with you all, and that we have entitled Philippians, the Letter of Joy. I should say at this stage uh, as well that in our readings we're going to cover the whole book, uh, the whole of the letter in six weeks. Philippians is only a relatively short book, uh, four chapters, um, but in order that we hear all of it, some of our readings may be uh, a bit longer than we would normally have, like this morning, so you've got a, 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 a tiny gospel in, uh, in compensation. But it's a great way to see the whole of a book of the Bible and to try together to make sense of its key messages to us as we, like the very early Christians in Philippi, seek to do our best to follow Jesus as closely as we can throughout our lives and to be the community of believers, our church, the Cranmer group, that Christ calls us to be together and that Paul models for us through his own example and through encouraging and challenging others. In fact, as it's clear from the letter's introduction, which follows the conventions of its time, the letter to the Philippians was written not just by Paul, but by Paul and Timothy, Paul's companion in spreading the word of God throughout much of the eastern Mediterranean. It always makes me a bit nervous when I hear Timothy. It makes me feel that I've done something wrong. <laughs> but anyway, um, Timothy would, this Timothy, or that Timothy, not this Timothy, uh, that Timothy uh, would most likely have been the scribe to whom Paul dictated his letter. But it's also the case that particularly as Paul's trusted companion and guide, Timothy would also very probably have made some contributions to the letter in its final text. You can imagine them uh, sort of sitting together alongside one another, um, crafting it uh, mutually. Slight conjecture. We've no real way of telling which is which, but it's from the pair of them in its introduction, so we assume pretty that Timothy made uh, more than a small contribution. What we do know, however, is that Paul had visited the Roman colony of Philippi in, we believe, 49 AD, and that he'd been instrumental in the planting 
of the church to whom he's addressing this letter. We see that foundation in chapter 16 of the Acts of the Apostles, where we're also told of Paul and his companion at that point, Silas, being thrown into, into prison by opposing crowds, but then miraculously escaping mid-earthquake and bringing the jailer and members of the jailer's family to faith in Jesus Christ and being baptised on the spot. But by the time of the writing of this letter, Paul's circumstances had changed dramatically. He's not just jailed overnight, but much more permanently, imprisoned under the Roman legal system. It's the received wisdom amongst New Testament scholars that the most likely time and place for Paul to have written the letter to the Philippians is approximately 62 AD, and that he was under house arrest in Rome at the time, the city in which it's believed he was ultimately killed a few years later by the imperial authorities. If you go to Rome, you can see a house, certainly a Roman house from the time, excavated um, underground, um, apocryphally. It is the house in which Paul was imprisoned, but you can certainly get uh, an idea, a very strong uh, idea uh, and, uh, and a really uh, rather visceral sense of what it must have been like to live in that place at that time, even if it wasn't the precise house. Um, I recommend it if you have never been. Plenty else to see in that city too, of course. But this is the context of the whole letter that Bronwyn and Annie and I will be exploring with you all over these coming six weeks and it's a background that I think is really important for our understanding of what Paul seeks to communicate to its recipients and the way in which it speaks to us in our contemporary setting too. But just as I've given us a backdrop here, right at the very start of the letter, Paul and Timothy also set a context for what they wish their Philippian readers to understand. And it's contained within the way they introduce themselves according to the conventions of the day. Paul almost always expresses his affection for the Christians to whom he writes um, in, in quite effusive ways generally, occasionally rather less so, but in this instance there is an especially deep love reflected in his words for the church in Philippi and for its members. If we look at many of Paul's other letters, Paul will perhaps defend or justify his position by referring to himself as an apostle. He's, he's giving himself, he's, he's defending his claim. But in, but in this case, um, they know that firsthand. They've met him, they've experienced his ministry. There is no need for him to do that. Um, since Paul and Timothy know them very well, they uh, launch almost immediately, without any of that formality, into thanksgiving and prayers. But Paul and Timothy set a vital marker for the whole of the rest of the letter there as well. They begin, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. They call themselves servants. 
sometimes even translated, perhaps more technically accurately, as slaves, although that of course has um, deeply uncomfortable resonances for us in this day and age. They call themselves servants of Christ Jesus. That's how Paul and Timothy choose to, and declare that they choose to, live their lives in submission to and service of Jesus Christ. They're no longer their own, but they are owned by Christ. Every part of their lives belong to Jesus. They're saying, we are all in for Jesus. They've done, as he told his disciples in our Gospel reading, obeying everything I have commanded you. And in this, there's a clear message to their audience. This is how all of you are called to live your lives too. This, of course, is deeply ironic, really, because Paul is encouraging his audience to submit themselves to the good news of Jesus Christ in their lives, as he and Timothy have done, from a position in which his own life is on one level completely curtailed by the house arrest to which he is subjected for precisely for preaching that gospel. He's a travelling apostle who can neither travel, as he had done previously, nor speak uh, in the first person to, to the witnesses uh, with whom he had been able to engage for the gospel throughout those journeys. Although we hear of him witnessing to the, uh, the audience that he did have, the guards uh, that kept him in his place. But this is only a physical constraint, because spiritually, despite all these incredibly difficult circumstances that he faces, we hear a totally different Paul in his words. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Joy because of your partnership in the gospel. In the midst of all his difficulties, Paul knows deep joy. How can this be possible for him? And how might it also, especially if we face significant challenges in our lives, as I know many of us in our community do. How might it be possible for us to share in that deep joy too? First of all, it's really important for us to define what joy is and what it is not. Joy is not happiness. All of the factors that result in a decline or indeed an increase in our happiness are circumstances that are thrust upon us. They're beyond our control. Often we have a vision of how life ought to go. And if our vision isn't accomplished, then our happiness is undermined. Our happiness is very dependent on the interplay between our vision for our lives and the nature of the circumstances around us. What we perceive, what we believe, and what we achieve. 
But Paul is writing to his Philippian brothers and sisters in Christ, not about happiness, but about the joy they share in the gospel. Verse 6 of our reading is one of the best definitions of biblical joy. Joy that's not about the vision that I may have for my life, but rather trusting that what God intends to accomplish, he will accomplish in my life. This joy rests in the vision that God has for Paul's life, for the Philippians' lives, and for our lives. And these things cannot be more different. Happiness can be undermined by my circumstances, but joy can never be undermined by circumstances, because no circumstance can ever undermine God's plan for my life and your life. Our joy, therefore, I suggest, springs from the extent to which we trust in God, in his love for us and in his providence over our lives. Indeed, joy isn't really something that we can strive for, but rather a gift from God, a consequence of placing our trust in him and knowing in our hearts by God's Holy Spirit his love for us through Jesus' death on the cross, washing away our sin and our shame. Paul understands this so profoundly that even though all that he's done for years is to share the gospel with so many, and he knows that there's so much more that he yearns to do on earth, bringing people to Christ, Paul realises that he can barely choose between continuing this joy-filled work of God alongside those whom he loves or departing and being with Christ. For Paul, living is about being with Jesus, and dying is about being with Jesus. And Paul recognises this also in God's, all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, as he refers to them. He speaks with such generosity and such grace of the partnership that he and all of them not just the overseers and the deacons that he refers to specifically, but all of the believers in that city, that he and all of them share in the gospel, since he seems to trust in the Lord, that he has begun a good work in them, and that he will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And so what may we in conclusion, draw out of this the first of our Sundays with Paul and the Philippian Christians. First, that like Paul and Timothy, we are all called to dedicate the whole of our lives to Christ. That in the word of Jesus' great commission, we obey everything he has commanded us. Second, that like Paul, through our trust in Christ's redeeming work and the Holy Spirit's transformation of us, we are able to receive the gift of God's great joy, the knowledge that his plan for our lives will accomplish <coughs> in spite of all the difficult and challenging circumstances that may surround us. And finally, 
I'd like to suggest that each of us can have a renewed confidence in our faith and in our value to the spread of the gospel, however weak some of us may feel in both of these regards. If Paul, the greatest apostle of them all, refers to the fledgling Christians of Philippi, each and every one of them, as partners, partners in that spreading of the gospel, surely we too can be affirmed in our faith and in how God can use us in sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. May we leave here this morning, each one of us, with a renewed sense of joy in the gospel and of its message for us and for all. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.